O God, our Father, bless forward in faith. Inspire us and strengthen our fellowship. Help us to witness to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that with love, patience, and evangelical zeal, we may win many hearts to Catholic truth and apostolic order for godly life within the fellowship of thy holy church. We ask this through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, welcome back, my friends. We are kicking off this week's episode of Forward in Faith North America podcast. And we're going to continue talking about priest formation, priestly formation, what is the priesthood, uh, what, are, what are bishops and deacons. You know, we want to be really trying to expand upon these principles in a helpful way. So last week we looked at, what did we look at last week, Adam? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> oh, man. What was that? I just listened to it on uh, Sunday, too. Oh, my gosh. And everybody who's got this on the radio in the car or in the earbuds are like, come on, guys. Like, you know, we expect you to know a little bit more, a little quicker when you're talking about this. Well, to those who didn't listen to last week's, this is what this is, is a shameless plug. Go back and listen to last week's. You don't have to stop listening to this one because they're not necessarily predicated one upon another, but they are hitting on different aspects. And since we talked about nature and grace and the ontology of what's going on in the priesthood, we want to today talk about the aspect of headship. We're going to look at headship, the priesthood, which again would be specifically the apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons. But we're going to try to correlate this across the board with each order, each rank. So bishops as headship, priests as headship, deacons as headship. And the one is deacons as headship, I think, is probably going to be interesting for some people who, who haven't considered it, but we'll hopefully get there uh, towards the end as a latter part of our, our discussion. So welcome to this episode's edition focusing on priesthood and headship of Forward and Faith North America podcast. Well, if you got a Bible or if, again, as I mentioned a minute ago, you're driving and you don't have one readily available, in Colossians chapter 1, St. Paul, in verse 18, says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. So the principle of headship as it relates to the Lord Jesus is pretty clearly established, I think, across Scripture, not just because of this statement in Colossians, but Paul emphasizes this to the Ephesians. He emphasizes it to the, to the Corinthians. He in, in the Corinthian passage, as a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15 he very, very clearly parallels Christ's relationship to Adam, the natural world to the spiritual. And remember, spiritual doesn't mean ghostly. And then how the old creation is in relation to the new creation. So that those two parallel themes are working itself out. Because next week, Lord willing, when we talk about the apostolic succession, we're going to talk about him as uh, a part of the eschaton, part of the eschatological in breaking of the kingdom. But for headship's purposes, hear what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. 
He says, uh, so also is the resurrection of the dead, the different kinds of glorification and, and the resurrection. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Let me pause there for a second and point this out with the Eucharist. When we receive Christ in the sacrament and we talk about a spiritual communion, we are not saying it's ghostly in a disembodied sense. Because right here, St. Paul says that Jesus' physical, material body is a spiritual body. It's a difference. It's a category difference. So when we receive Christ in the sacrament, we are receiving Christ truly, spiritually, eating his flesh and drinking his blood as we are literally eating the bread and wine that have become the body and blood through the prayers of consecration. But without going further into the Eucharist, back to the text itself. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Now, this is this important. Um, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And then Paul says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the, the parallelism here is pretty significant between living being and life-giving spirit, and how much of this Paul is um, separating, like is he trying to separate being and spirit, or is he trying to parallel them? Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think he's, he's completing, when, we, when you talk about nature and, and grace, the ontology of the relationship between the two, the first man, Adam, is the living being. He is the natural man who is alive, but he needs grace from the last Adam to become a life, to be, to come alive in his spirit. We could go into, into talk more about that, but I want to emphasize how Paul is referring to Jesus here. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. We can take that principle and go back to Leviticus and look at the Levitical priesthood of the high priest, the priests, and the Levites within that one tribe and see the bishop, the priests, and the deacons as a distinct order within the entirety of the redeemed people of God. We could, we could do that as well there. Uh, verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And so Paul here is pointing out what's, uh, in some places, some theologians have referred to as like the federal head, if you will. In the same way that Adam is the natural source, the fount for all of human beings, Christ is the source for all Christian peoples. Adam through the natural, Christ through the spiritual, so that we should not take spiritual and circumscribe it to an inner subjectivity in my heart, but recognize it to be a life-giving principle from heaven 
from Christ, the spiritual man, the spiritual Lord, who is the head of the body. And in the same way that I have physical characteristics, so also I have spiritual characteristics that come from my ancestors. In the case of the faith, Christ himself is the head, and he's the one who is giving that spiritual life and vitality to me now. And that necessitates concepts of mediation. And that's where our concepts of tradition come from, capital T tradition within the church. And even the, the kind of churches that we grow up in and are formed in spiritually, we are receiving graces from Jesus mediated through his messengers. We, we talked about that with Paul a little bit last week in his letter to the Colossians about how his sufferings were filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. And so it is that those, those men who stand in holy orders, as they participate in the headship of Jesus in succession through time, are also partnering with their forebearers as they lay groundwork and perpetuate the railroad track, if you will, for their successors. But the, the relationship here upwards toward God, backwards and then forwards for the now, is packed into these, uh, this, this concept, the concept of headship over the body. Christ is not a head without a body. He is working through the agency of the body, and within that body is the participation with him in his decision-making and what he's doing. And not that we help him make his decisions. I don't mean it like that. But he, he participates in what he's done through the agency of the apostolic ministry. And so Christ as head of the body is reflected through the headship in the church and the headship in the home. And Paul will bring that point out in the pastoral epistles, where he talks about the household of faith, the house of God, and then the, the, the house itself, as in the human sense. And as there is a father over the house, there are fathers in the household of God. Specifically in that case, it's himself and Timothy, and then Titus and Crete. So he, he puts all this together and weaves it together as a consistent tapestry of headship, beginning with Christ, then to the apostles, and then by devolution of order, priest, and deacon. Yeah, and I think that's, most people would have no issue agreeing with the headship of Christ. Correct. Yeah, that, that, really, At least okay. we hope so. Yeah, I, hope, I hope that's not an issue that they're they're struggling with. We might need to go back to the basics. It's when you leave that to the next congruent thoughts is where you really see argumentation begin and even more so the practical implications of all of that. Well, we back away from it because of contemporary concepts that disconnect the head from the body or redefine what it's like to be in Christ by taking and going to Paul's letters to the Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, and saying, well, you know, what Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, I'm sorry, in, the, in Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But when you come to Galatians, he says there's no distinctions in Christ. And so then that means, in the modern interpretation, that there is no distinction in new creation. And that's not what he's talking about. In the same way that the natural world has within it distinctions and variations 
It's the same thing in the spiritual world. Look at the ranks of angels. Look at the nature of angels and how some are holy and some are not. Look at the, the, the differentiation from one angel to the next and the speciation that exists within that. It's more diverse than the natural world as the natural world is, is you know, part of that created order and operation. So that's, that, that, those are big points. And we and we did we talked about this idea. I mean, you're essentially explaining hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. We we talked about hierarchy last week as well, and really I think laid the foundation that um, hierarchy is not bad. <laughs> like it's it's a good thing. Uh, I think that that really is. I think a a presupposition that you need to enter in to this idea of of headship is that hierarchy is not bad, and it is naturally at the beginning how it was made to be. The antagonistic concept against hierarchy in the modern world basically says there's God, then there's everything else. And everything else below God is essentially equal in itself, one thing to the next. And we have the, the um, privilege, the grace, the responsibility, the, oh man, pick, pick an adjective that sounds good to you, because you'll see where I'm going here, to say to God, that we appreciate that he's in charge, but we would really prefer it if he made a couple other decisions about some important stuff to us. And that's, that is exactly not how he has organized the world. And to make that a, even more clear, clear, make it more stark, go into space and try to breathe without a spacesuit. You can't do it. No, it'd be very difficult. Yeah, it'd be very difficult. So there's hierarchy in the created order, and there are certain things that are possible within that created order. There are other things that are utterly impossible, no matter how much we wish they were otherwise. It can't be the way. It can't be that way. So that speaks to hierarchy in nature. And um, hierarchy on a philosophical level comes from the ancient Greeks and the city-states because they had such a multicultural um, influx that when those cultures came together with their various perspectives, they would often be at each other's throats. They'd be in conflict. And so as the philosophers are going back and forth on how do you shape a polis, go back and read Plato's Republic. How do you, how do you shape a city? Well, you have to create a hierarchy of what is most immediate, what is most necessary down to what is the least. And once you've created that hierarchy, then you can pass a set of laws that can allow for multiculturalism to exist. And what happens is that the multicultural city becomes a distinct culture itself over time. And that's how they work this out. And we see that principle at work with the prayer book. There are various customs and perspectives, but once everybody starts using essentially the same form, we start to create a very distinct thing. And we see that concept really all, all over. Um, we see it in the workplace, this idea of like hierarchy of tasks, um, uh, priorities of work as what we call it in the army. You know, you want to make sure that you have security in times of war over eating food. Uh, eating food is not at the same level as pulling security and making sure everybody's safe. Yeah. Yeah. These things I think used to be taken for granted. They used to be known and they're not anymore which speaks to one of the reasons why I think we're just taking a couple minutes here to bring it up to people who we hope, per, you know, get that perception, get that uh, nailed down for them. Because if we think of Christ as something other than the head, 
he's not rightly honored and worshiped and his word is not perceived and taught and believed as it should be that his word is not interpreted by us his word interprets us and then defines and judges us and so the responsibility of headship within the church principally with the bishop and then again by devolution into the priesthood and into the diaconate is to teach and preach the word of Christ so that his word does in fact judge, evaluate, and legislate the church. That's what's supposed to happen, not to take the needs of the world, whatever that is, whatever those are, and then retro that back onto the text, and so reinterpret the text so it doesn't mean what it's always meant. That is the principal gateway into practices and belief systems that are antithetical to the text, but make us feel better for the generation that we're in. That is not what headship is in, in for Christ, and it's not headship for the church. It's not how this looks. Think about the man who has a child and lets his child determine what he eats, when he gets up, when he goes to sleep. And part of the, which would be terrible, until the child is grown. And so the responsibility that the father has with the child is that he's sh shaping and training his conscience. He's shaping and training his work ethic. He's shaping and training his behaviors, his speech patterns. I mean, kids soak up that stuff from, from mom and dad. I remember years ago, I was uh, at a church I was pastoring in another, you know, far away from here. Uh, probably close to some people listening, but far away from here. <laughs> and I looked out the window and I thought I saw one of the guys from the church. And I thought, why is he, he's standing up straighter, but it's, it's him. It's gotta be him. And I looked a little bit closer and realized it was his son. And the, the, the man that who I thought he was, was in his late sixties and his son was in his late forties. And what made sense? The gait was the same. The body was the same. The clothing was roughly the same as, you know, between father and son, their movements were the same, except one stood up a little bit straighter because he was younger. You don't train your kids to do that. They just pick it up. Headship speaks to pace setting and expectation setting in the church. So Paul's doing that in, in 1 Timothy, you know, when he talks about the, the heart, if you will, of our command. When we give commands in the church, it's from a place of love, of sincere, sincerity and, and truth. It's not about manipulation and control and domination. Those are all diabolical traits, but they must nonetheless be given. And that's where headship speaks to responsibility and not just status, not just a concept of authority that's detached from necessary tasks that are often so necessary that you don't want to do them. That's where the formation comes in. I must do the good because it's good and it needs to be done. And in doing the good, I overcome my own obstacles and hurdles and become better myself and the people that I am presiding over, that I'm leading, that I'm shepherding, they become better as well, or at least they're given the opportunity uh, because adults aren't children. And part of our tasks in headship in the church is not to bring people into the church alone, but to present them mature in Christ but to help them grow so that they make their decisions that they need to make in light of a, of a conscience that's been formed in right and good things based upon the clear and plain teaching of Scripture as that Scripture has been understood at the feet of the fathers. That's what's going on in headship 
And when we start with the natural, with Adam, then we see the spiritual. And both of those qualities are at work in the world, in the church. And so the, the men who are called into orders need to exemplify their, a capacity to rightly lead their natural families and therefore not just to lead the spiritual families, but then that they can lead them because we see them do it in the natural. So you can take this here, right, um, from 1 Corinthians 15, and you can, that's a backdrop for Paul's pastoral epistles. You got the same effect going on. So the priesthood, the apostolic ministry is bound up in headship. So let's take headship now and move into another way to exemplify how this is perpetuated or explained in Scripture. When the Lord Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes upon him in fullness. Everything he does, he goes, he, he goes and does in the power of the Spirit. His ministry, his work is, is a massively charismatic in that sense, okay? In the sense that it's a powerful working of the Spirit in and through him. Now, he obviously does things as the incarnate God. I'm not, I'm not speaking about epiphany in that sense, but about the, about the incarnation in that sense, but about the work of the Spirit here, the agency of the Spirit. Baptism, transfiguration, I mean, you, you can go through the various events through the, through the life of the Lord and see this. After the resurrection, when he breathes on the apostles and he says, uh, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. The breath of the Lord Jesus is the person of the Spirit, and they breathe in the Spirit. And when he does this for them, some commentators have said, well, this is the Pentecost for the apostles. Or others have said, this is the foreshadowing event that the Spirit will come upon the church. No, no, go back and read the fathers, scripture at the feet of the fathers. This is when the apostles are, are sharing now in the headship of Christ in a much more immediate and distinct way. It's, it's their ordination, if you will. They are breathing in the Spirit and the breathing in of the Spirit directly from the lips of Jesus, right out of his own resurrected, glorified spiritual lungs that they breathe in is an ontological change in them. And that ontological change in them, yes, it's, a, it's about authority to forgive and not forgive sins, but connotated within that is life so that they become agents the age, through them life is going to be proclaimed and ministered to the church. You know, there are still plenty of, of priests, uh, bishops and priests, but when they celebrate at the Eucharist, they'll, they'll blow on the elements. <sighs> Breathe out. <sighs> We're calling this, right? And then in the ordination, you know, um, many of our bishops, I don't think all of them do. Uh, I know many of our bishops will, will breathe on the ordinand, receive the Holy Spirit, and then breathe, breathe out the Spirit because they breathe in the spirit. And this is going back to this in John 21, uh, John 20. Um, so, but they breathe in the spirit. There's this, this ontological change in them now that speaks to empowerment, life, and creativity. It's a creative or not their creativity, but Jesus's creativity in the same way that he breathed into Adam and made him come alive. And so now Christ is breathing the spirit into the apostles, making them 
come alive as empowered, authorized agents for the task of apostleship in the church. So the giving of the Spirit is not a generic thing anywhere in the passages of Scripture. Uh, being born of the water in the Spirit. I mean, the Spirit is doing the thing that's symbolized in the sacramental act of the water. The, the spiritual eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist is the, through the, the consecrated agency of the bread and the wine. The Spirit is causing us to feed upon Christ's body and blood. That's in John 6, you know, uh, this, the words that I speak to you, their Spirit and their life. Um, same thing here with orders, holy orders. The Spirit is the one causing this effect to take place. And in doing it, he's raised the apostles up to headship. Okay, let's jump forward to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there's a problem with uh, food distribution between the Hebrew and the Greek widows. So the apostles decide that it's not good. So here's wisdom, because they've received the Spirit. Jesus has breathed on them. Here's wisdom. It's not good that we should neglect the Word of God to wait on tables. It's not good that we should neglect the Word of God to wait on tables. They then call upon the people to appoint seven men who can share in the ministry, share in this liturgical act, in the service. When you read this account in Acts 6, Luke is paralleling it to Numbers chapter 11, both in allusion and in almost quotation, where Moses, at the command of the Lord, calls 70 elders from Israel to receive of the spirit that's upon him so they can help him preside over Israel. And in the Numbers passage, they're the elders. They're elders. In Acts 6, they're not called elders, but the, uh, the verb form of deacon is used. So often in Acts chapter 6, they're referred to as deacons, historically speaking, although the, that particular title is not given to them. Um, I think, this is my take on that, is that because what they're doing in Acts 6, yeah, I think they're making these guys as deacons because they'll be called deacons later on. I think they are making them deacons. But what they're doing in Acts 6 speaks to how they do the devolution, if you will, how they, how they devolve their authority into the other orders of ministry across the rest of the book of Acts, where Luke doesn't give us any details other than they would fast and pray and lay hands. I think this is the expanded form so that we know what he's talking about when he says the apostles will do this when they go out and they appoint elders in the churches, Paul and Barnabas, etc. And what, um, what Paul's referring to in his the pastoral epistles about appointing elders. Well, a couple big differences here. When the Spirit goes from Moses to the 70, two of them are not in the camp, or they're not with, with the 68, they're out in the camp, Eldad and Medad, and they prophesy, but just once. In Acts chapter 6, the Spirit comes upon these seven, and we get accounts, lengthy accounts of about two of them who do not prophesy just once, once, but they continue to prophesy and to speak with the wisdom of the Spirit so no one can refute them, Stephen and Philip. So there's even further parallel that Luke is doing with Numbers 11. This speaks to the diaconate being a principal office of headship. The deacons serve because that's what the word means. They're servants, but they're participating in the grace of headship by exemplifying what service looks like in the church, which is one reason historically that the deaconesses were never ordained. If you go back and you read the ancient canons, deaconesses were set apart. They were set aside. They weren't consecrated. They weren't ordained. 
they were set aside, meaning the bishop had a specific prayer that he would pray for them, but he didn't lay his hands upon them and he didn't breathe the spirit out upon them because they're not participating in headship. And so the corollary between headship and priesthood or headship and ministry, headship and natural grace is bound together from the law of Moses all the way through to the, to the latter portion of the New Testament. And that is perpetuated and maintained by the fathers of the church. So when headship is dismissed, when it is considered a gender role uh, in, the, in the contemporary idiom, going back to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and some of these others, uh, Bovier and who's the other one? Uh, the postmodernists who, who, who intentionally sought to deconstruct. That's where the phrase deconstruct comes from, the word to deconstruct uh, gender ideology. It comes from that. Uh, I, it, it depends on who you ask. I've seen them call it second wave feminism, but it was it was a whole postmodernism is really what's going on when they start to do that. Headship is a is for some of them it's a bad thing, and for others it's just a it's a, it's amorphous. It can be replaced to mean something else. So it undermines headship naturally, and it undermines headship spiritually, and then it elevates people who should not be into headship roles into those roles which in the New Testament sense, it's not, the New Testament doesn't forbid, um, or the New Testament doesn't say that only men can be ordained. It doesn't say that. When you, if you want a summary statement of the New Testament, it's that only some men can be ordained. And there's a very specific thing, the very specific reasons for this. And it's, it's pretty clear in the text that it's about natural headship and then the natural headship, first the natural, then the spiritual, then the spiritual. One of the things that I think it's really interesting, uh, kind of looking at that, <clears throat> is how Moses had to be prompted to pick the, the 70 when he was overwhelmed with ruling. Yeah, he wasn't just going to do it. Right? He wasn't just going to do it. And I think that's, that's interesting. I think that also speaks to the wisdom of the, talking about that, that event of Christ breathing on them, that it's, you know, obviously they do have the story of... Um, of Moses in that, but I think there's something about that wisdom, even that they go in and they're not threatened by that. Um, with this, uh, their idea of, of, of headship, even in this, they're not threatened to give that authority to these seven men who are full of the spirit to go and do these things. Well, so that's part of what's going on too, right? Because the requirements is that these people already be faithful people full of the spirit. And so when they receive the Spirit through the laying on of hands of the apostles, they're not receiving the Spirit in the baptism or the confirmation or even in a special charismatic pneumatological sense. That's not what's happening. They're receiving the Spirit for the office, for the work and the task that's been appointed to them. And when we take that and go again through the rest of the book of Acts, we see that the apostles are doing this for the deacons and for the priests everywhere that they go as they're setting up the church. So uh, I think that those are things that can't be overlooked. They should not be overlooked because um, that happens a little, too, a little too much, a little too quickly. When you study uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, he talks about Timothy receiving gifts when the council of elders laid hands on them uh, and Timothy was ordained. And so we see this, the, the expanding out of the principles of headship uh, for the purposes of an effective ministry. Because the ministry of, is Jesus's. It belongs to him. 
like exclusively belongs to him. And then like, I wonder at the day of judgment, let's say that you get somebody who enters into the apostolic succession as a bishop. And let's pick a really, really famous Episcopal see like, hmm, Rome. So you, you know, you find somebody who becomes a bishop of Rome and he does a bad job. Say Pope Honorius I, you know, condemned as a heretic after he died or teaching heresy. And there's others that say that's not the case. But let's just, let's just assume, right? So you get a bishop of Rome who doesn't do a good job, does a poor job. And some of them have been quite atrocious. On the day of judgment, yes, he will be judged by the Lord Jesus. But how much of his assessment, of his standing, of his, I don't want to say judgment because I don't mean it in that absolute sense, but of his uh, inventory, the, the, the stock taking, the fruit inspecting, all of that, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever kind of inspection he gets is not done by the Lord but done by all of his predecessors who were righteous. Because not only did he sin against the Lord, he sinned against his predecessors. And I say that because if you remember the, that event in church history, when Leo releases his tome, and the people start to cry out that Peter has spoken through Leo. And so I wonder, and, and I realize that's a little speculative there, but when you look at the revelation and the way that the saints are put on thrones, and, and as Paul says, you know, don't you know we're going to judge angels? Not to say that we will judge each other in a final sense. I don't think the scripture hints at that at all. But how much, you know, like you're standing in line to get judged and Paul walks up and says, hey, or Peter walks up, you know, the Bishop of Rome and says to a, a pope, what did you do, man? Why'd you do that? You know, why'd you say that? Why did you, why, or why, why did you permit that to happen? You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but all that to say that the principles of headship and the corollary Ideas that come from that are really important. And the doctrine of the apostolic ministry, the bishops, the priests, and the deacons, their relationship to each other in the church for the sake of the church is important and ought not to be overlooked. Well, thanks for listening this week, everybody. We're uh, trying to put together a, a series of topics that are um, really helpful in understanding what the priesthood is, what the apostolic succession is. And, and headship here is one of these that is ignored because of the cultural moment that we're in, in the West. Uh, but it won't stay that way. I mean, it's like that hierarchy of needs. The moment, you know, uh, or what I say, uh, not I say, I saw last week, a week ago, like somebody made the comment about, you know, how men are unnecessary. And the response was, well, if that was the case and men were suddenly gone, well, there goes the power grid. There goes most of your factory workers. There goes the the sewer sewer systems being maintained. There, you know, um, referring how we make these broad statements based upon cultural things, instead of thinking about the compl complexity and the nature of Scripture and the real genuine interdependence that God has put into the natural world and how that exists within the church, because headship necessitates a body, and so when we talk about the bishops and the priests and deacons being engaged in headship, participating in the headship of Christ by virtue of ordination, they don't exist for themselves. They exist for the glory of the Lord in the church, for the church.
so that the church can become the agent of change and redemption in the world. And I think that's going to be pretty significant for us as we try to think about these points and these topics, that we don't get caught up in, and skewed around into pursuing the other challenges. Uh, because I know that there are people who, who would say that, well, headship is amorphous and it just refers to the person in charge. It doesn't have to be male. Problem with that is you don't see it in scripture. You don't see it in scripture uh, as pertaining to the ordained ministry. And you don't see it in Christian history. There are plenty of things that women are, are doing in the church, ways that they exercise influence and lead uh, everything from mystics to Macrina, you know, the sister to the, the Cappadocian fathers, two of the Cappadocian fathers, Basil and Gregory, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. But this is one of the other challenges in common discourse theologically. And this way, and it's because of political correctness, that every time you make a theological truths claim, something that's true, you always have to make some sort of subsidiary comment about what you don't mean or how other people may or may not be involved because we, we become more emotionally driven in how we communicate instead of being able to say something that's factually true. And I don't mean you say it factually true in an argumentative or disputive matter, matter but you just communicate what's true. And because there's a genuine trust between the person speaking and the person listening, there's no need to qualify everything that's said. With a right restoration of biblical headship, that's one of the ways to move us away from this overly sentimentalized kind of communication so that we can, like Paul says, actually give commands and charges in the churches and not be afraid that people will be offended and leave. I mean, if there's only one church anyway, how can they leave? So I would, uh, I would, appeal to these principles and the necessity for these principles from the bishop and the priest and the deacon and how that works itself out in the church. And then for the church to rightly honor what those three, three offices are, not just because of the authority, but because what they should be doing. And uh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe that encouragement and exhortation will help some of these guys who feel uh, like they, they can't step into places of, of self-sacrifice in participation with Jesus to start to do it. But for what, it's, for what it's worth, for all you clergy out there who are listening, may the Lord just fan into flame the gifts that he gave you when you receive the laying on of hands, and may you find a, a fresh energy from him to do the work that he's given you to do. So thanks for listening this week. I'm Father Daryl, and I'm Adam. See ya. Well, talk to you next week. 